brilliant. How are you? It's a late summer afternoon with the chill of the beginning of autumn beginning to set in, but we're sat outside, Marion Turner and I, the author, associate professor of English at Jesus College, Oxford. Marion, first of all, thanks so much for coming on the corner table. Oh, my pleasure. It's lovely to be doing something face-to-face, not virtually as well. (laughs) Perhaps you can say a little bit about why you've chosen G's in particular. I chose G's not because I come here all the time, but because I've been coming here on and off since I was about 17. So in lots of different phases of my life. So when I was an undergraduate at Oxford, sometimes relatives would come and visit and take me out to lunch here. I took my supervisor here after I handed in my doctorate. One of my friends once had her wedding here. They cleared the whole place for the wedding reception. So it's got lots of memories from when I was a teenager right up to the present day now that I'm a middle-aged parent and author. Fantastic. Um, Well, of course, we're here to talk about your latest book, Chaucer, A European Life, coming out in paperback soon. Yes, I brought the paperback with me to show you. Excellent. I brought the hardback with me. Brilliant. Not to show you. I'm sure you've seen it before. But uh, I think one of the things that we probably should start off by saying about this book, and which probably distinguishes it from other biographies written about Chaucer, is that it tracks the life of this figure, the figure that we like to think of as the father of English literature, the father of English poetry, through places, but also spaces, water, torn, exotic, serene, confined astral spaces, which presumably means that when you read this book, you have to understand Geoffrey Chaucer's life through his movements. Exactly, yes. And that for me was a way of getting inside his imagination. So I didn't want to tell a straightforward cradle to grave story about just what he did. I want to try to get inside his head and to think about what did he see? Where did he go? What were the structures in which he lived? To try to understand how he was thinking and how his readers were thinking when they read certain metaphors or images. What did that conjure up for them? And I mean, you just mentioned the idea of Chaucer as the father of English literature, which is exactly how people think of him. But there are two words in that short phrase that are problematic, I think, both father and English. They conjure up preconceptions that I was trying to unpick and undo. Because when a lot of people hear the word father, they think of him as someone middle-aged, a bit staid, very canonical, which is, of course, how people think of him today. He's someone who's mainly read in schoolrooms and university classrooms. And Chaucer was many, many different things. And I wanted to track, you know, what his life was like when he was a teenager, all his exciting travels, all the things he did, and to get across the sense that he was extremely experimental. He was not canonical in his lifetime. He was someone who was trying all kinds of new things, reading texts that no one else was reading. He wouldn't have been thought of in any way as a father. You know, the father figures were people like Virgil. And then English. So, of course, it's a European life because... To think about a poet at this time, we have to think about Chaucer as someone that was multilingual. Most of his main sources and influences were not written in English. They were written in French, in Latin, and most importantly, ultimately, in Italian. And that transformed what English literature could do. So this great poet writing in English was really fundamentally dependent on European poetry and the experiences that he himself had both travelling around Europe and encountering Europeans and immigrants within London and in the court were foundational to the person and the poet that he became. So very much challenging the idea of Chaucer as a monolingual poet and certainly as a, a patriarch. So let's talk about the first place. Chaucer 
may have lived a European life, but he was born in the early 1340s in the city of London, then as now a very cosmopolitan place, but which was divided into little villages or, or wards. Vintry Ward yeah. was the ward in which he grew yeah. up, and uh, that's what it's still known as to this yeah. day. Um, what, broadly speaking, was England like at the time that Chaucer entered the world? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about his family, what his parents did, mm. and, and just what sort of country England was then. Yeah, so... While most of England was still agrarian, people working on the land, that was not at all what Chaucer's England was like or what Chaucer's world was like because he was a city boy. So his father was a wine merchant who himself went back and forward to to France um, to, to collect wines and he also had a post working for the king, choosing the king's wines for certain of the king's castles and residences. Vintry Ward, where the young Geoffrey was born and brought up, was an extremely cosmopolitan place. So it had more immigrants in it than any of the other wards of the city of London. These were mainly French, German, Italian, so people from different places in Europe who tended to be merchants or bankers because lots and lots of products came into London and went out of London at this time. So Chaucer lived in a trading hub. The main thing that was going out of London was wool. So that is England's big export product at this time. All kinds of things are coming in. So his father is dependent on the wine trade. But there are also things like fabrics and spices coming from right across the Silk Route. So right across the Silk Road through to the east. So England at this time was connected with small islands in Indonesia, for instance, which people are often very surprised to hear that spices were coming that far, all those thousands of miles in the 1340s. But England was a very connected place. Um, when Chaucer was born, Edward III was on the throne. And I mean, Chaucer's first few years are really sharply demarcated not only from the rest of his life, but in the way from the rest of, of human history by the plague. So, you know, he has these first about six years of life, six or seven years of life before the plague. And then the plague hits and his life, everyone's life changes completely. So uh, Chaucer is an infant on the cusp of childhood when the yeah. Black Death hits. And, and that is still thought to have wiped out maybe up to half of the population yeah, of England. Absolutely. And, and so how did he and his family survive? And in what state was England left by the time that disease was in retreat? And it's obviously really interesting for us at the moment living in a pandemic to think about what this was like, yeah, because the, the Black Death was a pandemic you know, completely different from what we are going through at the moment. The, the death rate was not only extraordinary, as you say, maybe up to a half, certainly at least, you know, a quarter or a third, you know, huge, huge death rate. And it struck people at all levels of society. So again, unlike COVID-19, which strikes in, in particular people in particular vulnerable groups, and particularly the old, the Black Death struck the young just as much. Um, so I think that, I mean, I've spent lots and lots of time over the years trying to imagine the psychological fallout of what that must be like, just trying to imagine, you know, a third of the people you know or a half of the people you know dying and dying very quickly, very horribly, and the absolute fear of how it was going to hit. And of course, no one understood how it was spread. You know, people had all kinds of theories um, and in various places in Europe, they blamed, for instance, Jewish populations and there were appalling pogroms in, in response. England had already expelled its, its Jewish population 50 years earlier. So that didn't happen here. Um, but, but people didn't understand it. So 
nonetheless, while while we can't understand, I think, the, the psychological fallout, however much we try, we can excavate the the social and historical fallout. And I don't think it was what people necessarily expect. Um, so first of all, if you survived, in general, things got better for you. And that is because essentially, if you look at the country, there's the same amount of land that needs farming and there's half the number of people who can actually work on it. So for ordinary people, they could demand higher wages. And if the local landlord didn't want to give them, they could move and they could ask someone else for higher wages or they could go to the city and try a different job. So you've actually got better wages and more social mobility for, for the people who survived. Um, now, the government tried to pass various statutes, the statutes of labourers, to stop this happening, but they didn't work um, because, I guess, economics doesn't really work like that. Um, so... So people who survived, there was more social mobility and then there were all kinds of changes in things like fashions and there were lots of sumptuary laws to try to stop people who'd been born poor wearing certain fabrics and furs and so on. You see this really interesting kind of social mobility. Now the other thing we see is this quite surprising continuity of institutions. So there wasn't total chaos. When you look at the bureaucratic records, they continued. You know, one scribe dies, another another hand takes over, but the records continue. When plague burial sites have been dug up by archaeologists, usually they have not found lots of bodies, you know, hysterically piled in in a heap. They found the bodies neatly laid out. You know, so structures of, of, of society actually continued. You know, people to an extent, kept calm and carried on, despite this appalling carnage that was being wreaked on their society. Tell us about Chaucer's education. As I understand it, the focus of schools at the time is very much on Latin. Yeah. The standard alphabet consists of about 24 characters uh, omitting J and W, interestingly. Uh, And whereas French is the dominant language in schools before the Black Death, now English starts to creep in onto the curriculum. Uh, what sort of education was Chaucer exposed to? Um, how might it have formed his first understanding and ideas about language and how it can be used? So he probably went to a grammar school in London, but we don't have evidence. But he certainly, he must have been school educated before he went to a great household. So as you say, most of the education was in Latin. But the way that people were educated, it was not just a kind of rote learning. It was a lot, there was a lot of debate. So for instance, um, one of the key curricular texts was Aesop's Fables, which they would study in lots of different versions. But you wouldn't just learn the fable and then the moral that comes at the end. The morals of fables are usually really strange. They, they, they often don't make much sense. So schoolboys would debate the morals. So what would be a better moral? What else might work? Why might, why might someone defend this? And so people would be given um, different positions to maintain. So the structure of debate was really important in the schoolroom. And students were supposed to be questioning things and again people often think that earlier education was very much about the teacher telling you facts and then learning those facts a kind of grad grindian idea of education Mm. but it wasn't like that it was a lot about thinking for yourself and debating with others so there were lots of kind of key classical texts on the curriculum um but then chaucer while he would have gained his fundamental education at school When he was a teenager, he then moved to a great household where he became a page boy. And in those households, you would then get further education. So Chaucer almost certainly did not go to university. But in fact, young boys in great households 
that they would also have gained education there. So they weren't paid, they just got clothes and food, but then they also got quite a lot of, of education from a tutor where they would, have, they would have read much more broadly then, and in Latin, but also in French at that point. So free thinking and debate, and, and I suppose in that sense, performance plays yes. an important role in spreading ideas in society during this period, both in the classroom and outside on the streets, in public theatre, even in things like public executions. Is there evidence that Chaucer was influenced very early on by what he saw and that he showed any flair for public speaking? We don't have that much evidence of him as a child. Mm. You know, so the first references to him that we have are as a page boy, so when he was kind of in his teens. But from very early on, he was chosen to go on diplomatic missions. So that suggests that he was a really good communicator, probably both orally and in writing. So after he, so, so when he, our first evidence of his going abroad was when he went to fight. You know, he had to go with his employer to fight in the Hundred Years' War. He was then taken prisoner and ransomed by the king. But then after that, we see him. Um, taking letters um, while there were diplomatic um, peace treaties being made. He was at least peripherally involved in that. And then after that, we see him going on lots of diplomatic missions as quite a young man. So I think that he was clearly a useful communicator and that after those early forays where he was going with armies, for the vast majority of Chaucer's life, he was trying to talk his way out of situations, not fight his way out of situations. You know, he tended to travel as someone who was a peacemaker, who was trying to negotiate marriages or wool treaties, those kinds of things. He was a, he was a negotiator and a diplomat. So he kind of became a master of oration, but I suppose in his teenage years, working in the great household, he was, he was seen more than heard, wasn't he? I think you've described him as a, a bit of a fashion plate. Yeah, so this is the first record that we have of Chaucer. And people tend to think that's quite interesting that this first record that we have is not about him as a poet, None of the records are about him as a poet, um, but nor is it about him as you know a customs officer, or, you know one of his his major jobs, or even as a diplomat or a prisoner or anything like that. This first record is just about the fact that Elizabeth de Burgh buys him some clothes, um, and so that's a record that people have known about for a long time, but no one had really investigated that record. And so I looked at it, and so it tells us that she buys him a poltock and some hose and some shoes. What's a poltock? Well, exactly. So I thought, what exactly is this poltock? <laughs> um, and then I started looking at different references at the time to poltocks. And it turns out that it was a really scandalous item of clothing, that it was this very short tunic that was worn with very tight um, body exposing hose that were laced up provocatively um, and lots of chroniclers at the time write about this set of clothes as outrageous and so there were these chroniclers in the early 1360s um, who said that lots of young men were going around dressed in these disgraceful poltocks and one even said that this was why the plague had returned to England in the 1360s because God wanted to punish England for these young people dressing so scandalously and outrageously. So I think there's lots of interesting things about that. I mean, so first of all, obviously, it's quite funny. Um, it's also, I think, partly it reminds us of this nothing changes idea. You know, old people are always complaining about what young people 
people wear. You know. In fact, it's quite timely that we bring this up now. Exactly. So this kind of, oh, it's all the teenagers' fault they're causing <laughs> plagues, which is, you know, obviously not, not very fair. Um, so that's an interesting element of it. But then I think there's also, and this I think is in some ways more important, is the way that this is not familiar. This is extremely alien because Chaucer is not a teenager managing to establish his own identity by choosing clothes of which his parents would disapprove and behaving in ways that the older generation are, are trying to oppress. He doesn't get to choose this at all. So he is living in an environment in which his subjectivity doesn't matter to his employer. His employer wants to, in effect, she wants to decorate these people who work for her. She wants them to look fashionable because that reflects on her. So they are being treated very much as objects, you know, just like she might be buying lots of beautiful hangings and cushions, which were quite fashionable at this time, for her great hall and her chamber. She's also She also wants to dress these young men that adorn these chambers and make them look cutting edge, high fashion. And so when I was thinking about places, I thought it was really interesting to try to think about the structures of identity and how the people that we are are determined by the the kinds of spaces that we live in. We all very much take for granted the importance of having a room of one's own, of being able to lock a door behind you, of a certain idea of privacy. And I think that affects how we think about um, creativity very much. But in the Middle Ages, people didn't think like that. They had a different understanding of what it meant to be a person, of how you relate to other people, of what things do you choose for yourself and what things do other people choose for you? So at this moment, Chaucer would not have had a room of his own. He would have bedded down wherever he could in the great household. He wasn't given money in payment. So he couldn't choose what food to buy or what clothes to buy. He was paid precisely in clothes and in food. And I think you know, throughout his life, we see him thinking about the private and the public in really interesting ways because this is a historical moment in which there are quite a lot of changes in an understanding of the private and the public and concomitant changes in the architecture of houses and great buildings so a greater interest in privacy but also a suspicion of what privacy and secrecy might bring. So in the book, you talk about the fact that people were chosen to associate and socialise in specific spaces that other people were shut out from or not allowed mm. to enter. So in a sense, you know, you can compare this to the digital age now of people with their group chats and with their echo chambers. But this was a very different time of, of people being forced to live face to face and confront the everyday. Yeah. So if you think about the king at the very apex of society, he would have a series of chambers and different people would get access to different chambers within that series. Mm. But you had to go through this whole series to get to his most private space, which only a few people would have access to. And then he started to build galleries and little doors so he didn't have to go through all those chambers if he wanted to nip out and do something secret and maybe disreputable. So that people are trying to access spaces in in different in different ways. But there's a, I mean, there's a really interesting passage in one of Chaucer's poems, The House of Fame, where so it's a poem about having writer's block. And there's a figure in it called Geoffrey who can't think of any ideas for a poem. 
And this guide figure, say, who's an eagle, um, says to him, well, your problem is that you just trudge off home and then you just sit there reading your books and you are dumb as a stone and of your very neighbours that dwell and almost at thy door. You don't listen to them. You don't pay them any attention. You just close the door and go in and you can't write. You haven't got any ideas. So the idea is... So, so the implication is what he should be doing is not only reading his books, but going and opening his door, standing on the threshold, talking to real people, listening to their stories. And when he gets to the Canterbury Tales, that's what he does. He blends the old sources, the books that he's read, with the idea of real people telling stories, which who are the Canterbury Pilgrims. Hello, mate. Um, so I think I'll go with the uh, wild mushroom tarragon and creme fraiche risotto, please. Um, Thank you. I'm going to have the linguine, please. Thank you very much. We, of course, will get on to the Canterbury yeah. Tales. We can't <laughs> not. Um, as a young man, he goes to war for the first time in Reims in France. Mm. Uh, this is the Hundred Years' War between France and, and England. How does this experience impact him? Well, again, as we're thinking about plague, you think about what Chaucer had gone through before he was 20. It's quite incredible. You know, this extraordinary social change. And then there he is, probably about 17, taken prisoner, kept a prisoner, ransomed. Um, You know, what a baptism of fire to your first excursion onto the continent, which it it probably was. Um, Well... I mean, Chaucer writes about imprisonment in some of his poems, and it's often difficult to unpick what is coming from personal experience and what is coming from texts that he that he read, because he also read lots of lots of texts about imprisonment. You know, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, um, Boccaccio's Tessida, on which the Knight's Tale is based, where he then talks about this experience of knights in prison. And I think Chaucer is really interested in looking at the parallels between physical imprisonment and psychological imprisonment. And it's obviously very resonant that that is something that he had himself gone through. So he really hammers home the comparison between being literally imprisoned as as the knights are and the fact that they are psychologically imprisoned by their feelings of love or adoration for the woman that they see out of the window and that she also is imprisoned by social structures even though she's not a prisoner in the same way that they are. So I think his own experience maps onto contemporary preoccupations with with ideas of, of how can we be free and is freedom really about a literal freedom or is it about how we feel inside ourselves you know can we actually try to create a freedom inside ourselves which is what Boethius's consolation of philosophy is very much about and I think again with these different ideas of the private and the public to an extent Chaucer questions whether a complete freedom is even what is necessarily desirable that for a medieval Christian we do remain, you know, all humans are supposed to remain subjected to God to a certain extent. But also, I think he depicts often a society in which we are subjected to other people. We can't just live out our own desires. We do have to take account of the other people with whom we live, that there is a, there's a way in which we are all in a cage and we can make a virtue out of that necessity. That's one of Chaucer's favourite phrases. Mm. So make a virtue out of necessity, make a strength out of what what is inevitable in a sense. So I think rather than 
rather than thinking about how can we be completely free or thinking oh it's so terrible we're so we're imprisoned and everything is determined there's somewhere in between that where you accept that some things are out of our control and then try to make the best of it essentially so what do we have in front of us here? What did we order? I ordered the uh, the wild mushroom risotto. Looks delicious. And you had the uh, linguine. I have a, a seafood linguine, yes, with prawns and crab and things like that. Marvellous. Is this a dish that you have ordered often from here? Uh, does the menu change very often? It does change very often. I think I've mainly ordered it because I've been having a lot of seafood in the summer and I'm treating this as still very much summertime because it's a lovely day and we're sitting outside. At this point, we should probably get on to how Chaucer becomes the icon we know him as today. Um, by the time he's an adult, he's well-connected, well-traveled. He works for the English crown as a diplomat and trade negotiator. And it's his contemporary at the time, a man called John of Gaunt, who plays a critical role in elevating his literary career. Yes, absolutely. So John of Gaunt, I think, is the most important figure in Chaucer's life. Um, so John of Gaunt was the one of the sons of Edward III, so the brother of the Black Prince. Now, the Black Prince died before he could become king, so just before his father, Edward III, died. Mm-hmm. So the Black Prince's son, Richard II, became king at the age of 10. So, of course, he couldn't properly rule at that point. And instead, his uncles, and particularly John of Gaunt, who is his most capable uncle, very much took on a lot of the reins of of government at that time. So John of Gaunt was a very powerful man in England. And Chaucer was part of his his retinue, which means he was paid an annuity. He was paid by John of Gaunt, and he did various things for him. But in fact, Chaucer's main connection with John of Gaunt was via his wife. So this is a a moment in which actually it's his female connections that really work for Chaucer because Chaucer's wife's sister Mm -hmm. was the long-term mistress of John of Gaunt. They had four children together. And then, scandalously, at the end of John of Gaunt's life, he married this long-term mistress. So he had had two other much more important, socially important wives. And after they had both died, that was Blanche of Lancaster and then Constance of Castile. He then married Catherine de Roe, Catherine Swinford, um, had their four children retrospectively legitimated which you can do at that time. And they were the Beauforts, who were ultimately the ancestors of the Tudors. So really interesting, because when they were legitimated, there was a clause which said, but this won't give them any rights to the throne. But the Beaufort line was where Henry VII and all the Tudors did derive their rights to the throne. I see. Anyway, so... Catherine was really important, obviously, to John of Gaunt. Um, he didn't treat his mistress um, badly at all, you know, even before they were married. Their children were all very much brought up together and Chaucer's children were very closely associated with that household. So there seems to have been a kind of fluid household in which John of Gaunt's legitimate children, his illegitimate children, Catherine's children by her marriage... Chaucer's children, they all seemed to live in a kind of fluid household together. Chaucer probably wasn't there much of the time. He was mainly living in his flat in London, going to work, doing the accounts at the customs house. But his children were, were very much brought up with with their cousins including and their cousins' connections, including the man who later became Henry IV. So Chaucer's is very well connected in that way. And it was after John of Gaunt started this relationship with Catherine that he really starts to give Chaucer a lot of promotions and to help him in his work life. Um, 
and then there's the question of Chaucer as a poet and how he connected to John of Gaunt as a poet mm. because the first long poem that we have by Chaucer is called The Book of the Duchess and is an elegy about the death of John of Gaunt's first wife, Blanche, the mother of Henry Bolingbroke, who became Henry IV. Did John of Gaunt commission that poem? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But it's certainly about about John and about his wife in a refracted way. Let's talk about the language. Yeah. Because it's really fascinating and is essential to understanding just why Chaucer remains so influential. Listeners of the English court and the public as well, I assume, were used to hearing French verse where the number of syllables in a line was key. But Chaucer instead uses English to apply stress to certain syllables. Yeah which is how he pretty much invents what's known today as the iambic pentameter. So for those who don't know what the iambic yeah. pentameter is, but will certainly have heard one used, could you explain the mechanics? Yeah, so the iambic pentameter is essentially a ten-syllable line with alternate unstressed and stressed syllables. So if I exaggerate it, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Right. So you have unstressed, stress. And it became the the fundamental building block of English poetry. So it's the line that Shakespeare uses. It's the, the line that the most popular poetic line, I mean, certainly through to the 19th century. But it didn't exist before Chaucer. And when Chaucer first started writing poetry, he was writing in the eight-syllable line. But often with that unstressed stress pattern because English is an accentual syllabic language so we do have accents and stresses which in the, just in the normal way that we speak which is not true of all languages but then after Chaucer had encountered certain Italian forms of verse so in particular um, there's, there's an Italian form of verse in which the Hendeka syllable which has 11 syllables and it has a stress pattern doesn't have the same stress pattern, but it has two fairly fixed stresses in it. And that poetic line seems to have been the inspiration for Chaucer developing the, the iambic pentameter. And once he started using that poetic line, he used it very consistently later on in his poetic career. The other thing that Chaucer does so originally is to tell stories from different characters' perspectives, something that we now take for granted. Um, but this was quite revolutionary at the time. It was. And one of the things that I link it to is the rise of artistic perspective as well. When Chaucer went to Florence, for instance, he would have seen Giotto's early experiments with perspective. So artists had started to experiment with not showing an authoritative view, but with the, the fact that what you see is dependent on where you are standing, where you are in relation to the frame. And I think it's really interesting that that developed at around the same time as poets such as Chaucer become really fascinated by the way that you can show different people's perspective. And what Chaucer is really, really interested in is the fact that stories are not the same if different people tell them. That essentially we can't just take one person's perspective because it will always, always be biased. And then what he does, which is so revolutionary in the Canterbury Tales, is he doesn't just show us that we should listen to different people's perspectives, but he says that these people should be from different social classes, different levels of society. And, you know, we were talking earlier a bit about the internet echo chamber. This is the opposite of that, I think. I think Chaucer is so interested in the idea that we can't, we can't avoid or we shouldn't avoid perspectives that are difficult for us, perspectives that we don't like, that might be coming from 
points of view from parts of society which we don't know about and we don't want to know about. We should really make ourselves listen to those points of view, not because we necessarily then want to agree with them, but because we can't really think for ourselves unless we listen to those different different points of view, as many as we possibly can. So when is The Canterbury Tales first published and how is it received? Yeah, so when Chaucer first wrote The Canterbury Tales, of course he's writing almost 100 years before print comes to England. So publishing was a different kind of phenomenon at this time because Chaucer lived in a manuscript culture. So with The Canterbury Tales, what seems to have happened is that Early on, he wrote, so in the 1380s, he wrote some of what became the Canterbury Tales as standalone texts. So things such as The Knight's Tale, we think The Second Nun's Tale, various tales were written as separate pieces and then later became incorporated into the Canterbury Tales. When he died, he left fragments. We call them fragments. There's 10 different fragments, which are clusters of tales. We don't know what what final order they were supposed to be in if indeed he had decided on a final order during his life he was probably circulating different fragments so groups of tales as he wrote them and then he was revising them and changing them so we do have different versions of different tales sometimes in some manuscripts one person tells a tale and in another manuscript he's changed the tale teller for instance so he was circulating these groups of tales mainly to people he knew he probably sent them in written form to people such as chamber knights lawyers fellow authors but he also probably performed them perhaps and I think very likely in places such as the Tabard Inn so the real Tabard Inn which was an inn in Southwark so the Canterbury Tales starts in a fictionalised version of the Tabard Inn which is run by a fictionalised version of Harry Bailey the real owner of the Tabard Inn there's a lot of blurrings of boundaries between the real and the fictional in the opening of the Canterbury Tales so I think Chaucer probably performed the tales himself other people would have performed them and read them out they circulate as I say also in in written form the earliest manuscripts that we have are from around the time of his death we don't know if they were produced in his very last years or just after his death we do have I mean we have evidence that people were reading his texts and responding to them because other poets were you know refer to his texts you know, during his own lifetime and he certainly started to to build up a following you know other poets even from other countries start talking about him as a great poet so in the 1380s Deschamps the the great French poet is already referring to him as a poet and they were exchanging poems so he was achieving a certain measure of fame but of course before print you can't achieve anything like the kind of numbers of readers that you can after mass production is possible but for every manuscript you would it would usually circulate to a group of people and also because people tended to read out loud even if you were on your own you read out loud but people would also read out loud to a group of people so you know, several people would access any individual copy of the text but it was after Chaucer's death that other poets start talking about him a lot as you know the master the father and holding him up as a, as a model so then quite early on in the in the 15th century he becomes seen as this this patriarch figure what sort of man was Chaucer? What sort of husband? What sort of father? What sort of friend? The evidence that we have is that he did have quite a close group of friends in terms of his friendships. He's associated often with lots of the same kinds of people that keep coming up in the records. They stand surety for each other. They do things for each other. They go on missions together. 
I think as a family man you were asking about as well, you know, it seems that he probably lived apart, quite apart from his wife for quite a lot of the time. You know, she seems to have been quite often with her sister. Um, he was often doing his job in a different part of the country. I mean, one of the only really personal um, anecdotes that we have is when he himself talks about his little son in one of his texts. And that, I think, is a very moving moment. You know, I'm, I'm often quite um, quite unemotional, I think, as a, as a biographer. I, but when I read the treatise of the astrolabe, so which he wrote to his 10-year-old son, I do find that quite moving. Because early on in it, he says... Um, so an astrolabe was a, an astronomical instrument that helped you to tell the time um, by looking at the heavens and helped you to understand the stars. And so he writes this um, this tract. It's a it's largely a translation of Latin tracts that had been translated from the Arabic, which I think is also very interesting going back to the kind of the cosmopolitan global Chaucer. But he writes the treatise on the astrolabe and he says at the beginning, I'm writing this for my little son. I'm writing this for you, Lewis. Um, Ten years old because your, your Latin's not great yet. So I'm writing it in English to help you to understand your astrolabe. And he talks about him as his little son and he's writing this little text for him. And it's quite an emotional text that he's bothering to do this. He's bothering to write this for his for his boy. I want to talk briefly specifically about the character of the wife of Bath. You refer to in the book as the beating heart of the Canterbury Tales. Yeah, well, in fact, my next book is going to be all about the wife of Bath. Ah. It's a biography of the wife of Bath across time, from her origins in antiquity right through to the 21st century. Chaucer treats the wife of Bath differently to all his other characters. So the wife of Bath has an extraordinarily long prologue, for instance. So some of the pilgrims don't have prologues. Some have very short ones. There are three that have what are called the confessional prologues in which they talk more about themselves. So that's the canons Yeoman and the... Um, Akansioman and the Pardoner are the other two. But the wife of Bath is far, far longer than those others. And she talks at great length about herself, her experiences, her five marriages, her experience of domestic abuse, about the fact that the whole canon has been written by men and is biased against women. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary text. So as well as that, Chaucer also inserts her into quite a lot of other Canterbury tales. She comes up, other pilgrims talk about her, talk to her, refer to her much more than they do any other pilgrim. There's one point in the merchant's tale when a character within the tale refers to the wife of Bath. So he's in the wrong level of fiction. He should not know about the wife of Bath, but she's everywhere. And then in one of Chaucer's short poems, so separate from the Canterbury Tales, a poem addressed to a friend of his, he again mentions the wife of Bath, says, go and read the wife of Bath. So the wife of Bath escapes from her own text. She is a book runner, right, right from the moment of her invention she's too big too vital for her own text she escapes and Chaucer makes all kinds of really interesting points about gender through the wife of Bath so the wife of Bath's tale is, is a story about um a man, a knight who commits a crime and is then sent to find out what women want. There are lots of other versions of this story, but Chaucer's version is really importantly different because only in his version is the crime rape. So this is someone who doesn't care what women want. And so the punishment of going off to find out what women want fits the crime in a way that it doesn't in the other versions of this story. It's also really important that this man who is a knight is 
unequivocally guilty of the rape. There's no doubt about it. Again, in the other versions of the story, the knight is not really guilty of the crime. He's been misunderstood. In one version, he's taking on someone else's crime. So the knight is a hero in those other versions. Ah, coffee. Thank you. <laughs> but in Chaucer's version, the knight is not a man who rides around on horses rescuing women and looking after damsels in distress, which is what we might expect a knight to do in, in romance texts, in Arthurian texts. That's not what he is at all. He's a criminal and he's a monstrous criminal. And the ethical heart of the story is an old, ugly, low-class woman who schools him and teaches him that the way to think about ethics and whether someone is a good person or not doesn't lie in their appearance or their social background it lies in in who they are so it's a very ethical tale it's a really really interesting text so there are many many things about the wife of Bath which are really interesting and Chaucer kept returning to her he kept on writing other things about her I think she is really fundamental to his art so what words do we inherit from Chaucer uh, you mentioned mm. the word newfangle at mm. the beginning of the book. Yeah, yeah. Any others? So, and obviously newfangle is a great example because, you know, Chaucer is so newfangled that he invents the word newfangled. Um, in one of Chaucer's short poems, he complains about the fact that there aren't enough words in English. So he's talking, he's addressing someone who wrote in French and he says, you know, well, it's all right for you because you've got loads of words, but, you know, here I am. But rhyme in English has such scarcity, he says. But of course, his point is that even though rhyme in English has such scarcity, nonetheless, he is able to find the rhyme words. So Chaucer borrowed a lot of words from French and brought them into the English language, which, of course, was happening more generally at at this time as well. Um, a lot of the words that the dictionary will tell you he coined, he may not have coined um, because they do appear in other texts as well at the time. But there are some that I think are really interesting. So such as, you know, we think he seems to be the first person to talk about the galaxy and the Milky Way, for instance. And those are examples that I particularly like, of course, because I've got a chapter on the Milky Way and he was particularly interested in the stars and astral travel. But he did expand the language in, in all kinds of ways and also of course expanded what poetic forms were possible in English so he was experimental in all kinds of ways and I think changed not only what the language could do but also what the literature was capable of. Finally what can we learn from Chaucer today given everything we've discussed about his life, his experiences, attitudes, his gift to the English language and his teachings really through his poetry well, I think the most Chaucerian answer to that would be that every reader is going to learn something different from Chaucer's texts. Because one of the things that he is very interested in is the role of the reader. So very often in his texts, he writes about the fact that you shouldn't just listen to authorial points of view. To You shouldn't just take from texts what authors say they mean. You should read for yourself. You should read a whole range of things. You should think for yourself. And he writes about the death of the author, which was a very trendy idea in the 1960s, but actually he also is very interested in that, writes lots of parables and stories about the deaths of authors and what happens to texts after authors are gone. You know, he tells us that, you know, thing that is said is said and forth it goeth texts go out into the world and then they escape their author's control and that's a good thing that readers should take different things from texts and I suppose that links to one of the things that I think is most important about Chaucer's text which is this idea of trying to 
read lots of different points of view and perspectives. And I talked about that earlier as well, but I think it does bear repetition. You know, this idea that of having lots of different narrators, all unreliable, none of them authoritative, but the importance of trying to listen to lots of different voices, of not closing ourselves off, which, you know, we all do. We all see the adverts that come up on our social media pages, the way that we are being encouraged only to read things that reflect our own points of view. And that is the opposite of what of what Chaucer was trying to say to us, which I think, you know, we all need to be reminded of to try to read things that make us uncomfortable, to try to expand the range of what we read. And I suppose the final point that I want to make is really the point that I make in the title of the book, that Chaucer lived a European life, that back in the 14th century, back in any point of our past, as you know, I'm you know, I've, I've, I'm someone from this country. This country has never been a place of. This country has never been a place which is isolated from the rest of the world, which is cut off from other countries, which is is which doesn't have immigrants it's always been somewhere which people have come to from lots of different places which products have come to from all over the world and if for Chaucer it would have seemed absurd the idea that you could be English without being European you know, these things were not and are not contradictions that you can be both and I think that you know for Chaucer his English poetry was fundamentally dependent on his travels around Europe his reading in European texts, his multilingualism, you know, you couldn't, you could not be an educated person at this time without being multilingual. It's absolutely fundamental to who he was. So he was an, an international cosmopolitan person. And you know, even his very choice to write in English was an international trend. He was copying the Italians who had shown that you could write in Tuscan. So even when he seems to be being most nationalistic, he is in fact being international. I think that's something that we can all reflect on. Marion Turner, thank you very much. My pleasure. Here's hoping you enjoyed this episode, for which special thanks is owed to Princeton University Press and with credit, as always, for the music to Boogie Belgique.